Well, good morning. You know, it's been a few years, or no, maybe not a few years, maybe a year and a half since I last preached, but I'm thankful uh, for the opportunity to be able to share God's Word with you all this morning. But I had to wonder, why did I get given this particular passage to preach? It's not exactly a joy-filled, happy uh, selection of Scripture, but nonetheless, I know that it's in the Bible for a purpose and for um, uh, good reasons. And so, please turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be taking a closer look at the first nine verses. Um, for the past six weeks, we've been studying 2 Timothy, and so this is where we're at today. We've heard that Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy while he was sitting captive in a Roman prison. And we know that he didn't live too much longer after he wrote this, because uh, as we know, uh, even though it doesn't tell us in the Bible, he was executed by the Romans at some point after this. This is part of our series that has been entitled Finishing Well. And so we are going to go ahead and read these nine verses, and then we're going to uh, take a closer look at each one of them. So if you'll join with me, I'll go ahead and read the, uh, the passage. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was of those two men. This is God's word. Now this passage gives us a clear warning of what to expect in the last days. So I believe our first task is to gain some understanding as to what the last days are. While there may be some who understand that the last days are still ahead of us, or that we have just recently started to live in the last days, the uh, best understanding is actually that Paul is speaking to Timothy about a time that they themselves had just recently entered into. The last days refer to the time between Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to the time of his return, when he comes for a second time to earth. And we know that we're in the last days, uh, and that the last days began already back then, uh, because of what we, else we read in the scriptures. For example, in the book of Hebrews, in the very introduction, the very first verse, the first chapter, it's written long ago at many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Also in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, it's written this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And finally, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Peter writes, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So it's clear as we read through that they were already in the last times. And the last times have been going on for about 2,000 years. These last times began when the church was established and will, they, they will end when Christ returns for his church at some point in the future. However, I believe that it's also biblical to believe that things will progressively get worse as we approach the day of the Lord, uh, as the last days progress. It's pretty clear for those of us who have been around for more than just a couple of decades that we've experienced in this culture and in this world kind of a radical transition toward godlessness just during the course of our own lifetimes. But as we look back over 2,000 years, we know that there have been significant points of evil cropping up along the way. Even just if we look back in the last century and look at all of the different isms, communism, Nazism, imperialism, and the significant misery that they brought to the world through oppression and poverty and warfare, we know that there are evil times throughout this time. But they will increase, I believe. So anyway, if we understand that we've been living in these last days for a couple thousand years, it's logical to believe then that these characteristics which Paul describes have been manifesting themselves in the world and in the church during this entire period of time since Paul wrote to Timothy. And if you consider that in all of church history, three-quarters of that time, that is about 1,500 years, the only church really was the Roman Catholic Church up until the time of the Reformation. You can see that there was significant corruption that corrupt into that church in the leadership of the church through their, through their bishops and their priests and even various popes. In fact, that's why the reformers uh, left the Catholic Church or at least had a desire to reform the Catholic Church was because of this corruption. And so much of it was because of leadership with these types of characteristics that we just read about. In fact... I find it interesting how Martin Luther, who oftentimes spoke very honestly and critically of Catholic leadership and of Catholic doctrine, in a letter that he wrote to Pope Leo X on Christian liberty, he wrote this. He said, The Church of Rome has become the most lawless den of thieves, the most shameless of all brothels, the very kingdom of sin, death, and hell, so that not even Antichrist, if he were to come, 
could devise any addition to its wickedness. Now, Luther may have had some weaknesses in his ministry and his writings, but being passive and vague were not two of them. But we don't have to look to the Roman church to find corruption because we have quite a record of lawlessness even in the evangelical church. Many a lawless preacher has disqualified himself through his own life. through his own selfishness, and through his own sin, for us, to, for us to, to really examine our own selves and our own churches, which is why this passage is so important for us to understand. First of all, it's important for you and me to examine ourselves in, in light of these characteristics and and honestly ask yourself, are any of these true of me? Do any of these characterize my life? And if so, are you willing to repent your, of your sin and confess your sin to God and to anyone else that's impacted? Secondly, it's important to understand this passage so that we can protect ourselves from the tyranny and abuse of corrupt leadership. It shouldn't come as a surprise to any one of us that false teachers would exist today. The Apostle Peter gave us fair warning in his second epistle where he wrote that false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction." And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That's in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Now, in this passage in 2 Timothy that we just read, Paul describes 19 characteristics of godlessness which will be apparent in the last days, a catalog of vices, which he says will accompany these days of difficulty. Now, other translations use the words perilous times to describe these last days. Now, the Greek word that's used here is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that was when Jesus exercised the demons out of the two Gadarene demoniacs in Matthew chapter 8, who were described as being so fierce that no one could pass them by. So we can also think of these times that Paul is describing as being fierce times. Now, these characteristics are certainly to be, uh, to be seen in the unregenerate world around us. But I believe that Paul is warning Timothy because he is to be aware of their presence cropping up within the church as well. Within the membership as well as within the leadership of churches. Men and women whose lives are characterized by these undesirable and sinful traits, particularly when they are pastors, are sure to cause immeasurable destruction in the body of Christ. 
That is why it is of paramount importance for us to consider these verses as we consider and as you consider the man who will be the next lead pastor of our church, that he be a man of utmost godly character. It is of no small significance that the biblical qualifications for pastor and for elders are largely based on his life and character and proven faithfulness to God and to his people. I pray that you will consider these things when the elders make their recommendation to you soon as to who should be our next lead pastor. Well, let's take a closer look at some of these ugly characteristics that Paul describes. They're mostly pretty self-explanatory. I don't need to spend a lot of time defining them, but I will, I will uh, we'll go over them anyway. Shortly. In short, I mean. So the first four that he describes are measures of a person's selfishness. He says, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant. These people are entirely self-focused, entirely inward-looking, not looking outward toward God or others. They are focused on money and possessions, the hearts are full of pride, which is manifested in arrogance. Any display of humility is a facade, merely an attempt to cover up their pride. In one of today's prominent heresies, the prosperity gospel movement, the love of money is not even thinly veiled. As the preachers of this false theology openly flaunt their riches, and possessions as being somehow proof of God's favor on them, their lives, their theology, and their ministry. The next two terms suggest socially destructive behavior. These people are abusive in word and in deed, especially when it's coming from a person of spiritual authority. Verbal abuse can be particularly destructive and have long-lasting consequences on those who have been hurt. Disobedience to parents is where destructive and abusive behavior begins. Soon leads to resistance to all the authorities that God has put over us in this life. Teachers, law enforcement, government, etc. It points to the rebellion that's inherent within this person's heart. The next four are all words that begin with un, U-N. They describe an absence of a godly trait or characteristic, an absence of the fruit that should characterize a Christian's life. The ungrateful person lacks gratitude. The unholy person lacks holiness, which is the reflection of the Holy Spirit and his presence and work in a believer's life. Holiness is what leads a person to desire to live a life of obedience to the word of God. The unholy person is not interested in conforming their life to that of Christ. The next two, heartless and unappeasable, can also be translated as unloving and unforgiving. Both love and forgiveness are two 
essential qualities of the Christian. And when they are missing, grace is missing as well. The next two reflect the person's speech and behavior. Slanderous means that they put people down. They're willing to lie about others to protect themselves and build themselves up. No self-control is the lack of a quality which helps regulate a person's behavior. It's so important in a person's life that Paul reminds Timothy earlier in this epistle in the first chapter that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That's in verse 7. Brutal, that's the next one. It means untamed, like a lion. Not lovers of good. Describes their appetite and desire for that which is ungodly. What they choose to read or watch appeals to the darkness and immorality of the carnal, fleshly mind. Unfortunately, in today's world, the possibilities of fulfilling one's desires for immorality are endless. With Netflix and other streaming services offering thousands of movies and shows that depict these things. In verse 4, he describes them as being treacherous, which means they're traitors, betraying their friends, reckless, making bad decisions that have negative impacts on others, unwilling to look down the road at the end result of their rash choices. He says they're swollen with conceit, which is the high and mighty attitude which enables them to treat others so poorly. And lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These pleasures, which they are driven to enjoy, is oftentimes the motivation for their ungodly and abusive behavior toward others. They have no love for God, and neither do they fear him. Finally, he says that they have an appearance of godliness but they deny its power. And this is what makes these people so dangerous. They are like the Pharisees, imposters, often putting on an appearance of respect and holiness and trust. If he's a pastor, he may be delivering snappy sermons, reading verses from the Bible, using all the right terminology, but at heart he doesn't believe in the power of God to change lives. He doesn't believe in the power of the gospel. He doesn't believe that the Holy Spirit is the one who takes the word of God and changes people's hearts. Rather, he believes real power to change comes from his lofty and persuasive arguments, from all the church programs that are available. In other words, though he may look like the real deal from the outside, he's a phony through and through. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul minces no words concerning these false teachers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15, he writes, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul's command is to avoid such people. Certainly, for one reason, I think this command is simply to keep ourselves from from becoming like them, knowing that bad company corrupts good character, 
But more importantly, I think it's to avoid becoming a victim of abuse or mistreatment or false teaching. This is how, how Paul describes these false teachers in his letter to the Romans, chapter 16, verse 18. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The best way for us to defend ourselves from being a victim of a false teacher is to equip ourselves. Or as John Piper is fond of saying, become Bible-saturated. To know the Word of God. To know and understand the Gospel. To have more than just a basic understanding of Christian doctrine and theology. We have to know what the truth is before we can spot a falsehood. As Hank Hanegraaff used to, be, used to say all the time on the Bible Answer Man show, you must be so familiar with the truth that when a counterfeit looms on the horizon, you'll know it instantaneously. It's also helpful for us to have some understanding of church history so that we will know how the doctrines of grace that we take for granted today were defined and defended and fought over and codified by many a great theologian in years past. And it's also good to know history because so many of today's heresies are just recycled garbage from years and years ago. The devil doesn't always try new things. Oftentimes, he waits for a new generation to come up and he'll pull out the same old bag of tricks. Next, in verses 6 and 7, we have this sort of strange warning where he says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is a bit of an odd verse, a couple verses, but I believe it does have an important message, and I'll try to explain it to you the best way I can. Um, when you read this verse, it, there, there is kind of a sexual component to it, and, and I believe that it's in there. It may not be all that's there, but it's certainly in there, and I think that these false teachers will oftentimes prey upon weak and vulnerable women who look up to them as spiritual authorities. They will use their positions of authority and abuse the trust that these women have in them. And they will manipulate them to satisfy their sinful sexual impulses. This is something that we unfortunately hear about happening too often in today's world. Recently, a very well-known and respected evangelist who I'm sure most of you have heard of so I won't even have to mention his name, had a profound impact on many, many Christians around the world who had doubtlessly brought many sinners to faith, was found only after his death last year of committing disgusting, horrifying, sexually abusive uh, acts over women over the course of years, all the while continuing 
his work of speaking to large audiences all over the world about the importance and the important work of evangelism. And that was a sad, sad story, not just for all of us who heard that and had been impacted in some way by his ministry, but imagine his family. Imagine those who worked close with him in his ministry. Imagine having to try to explain that to the world who looks at Christianity and says, there's nothing there. There's no power there. Because even the leaders of this Christian movement fall in the same way that you see politicians falling or other government people or other leaders or just our common neighbors. So it's, uh, the impact of something like this is huge and it's devastating. But it happens in, uh, it happens in smaller churches as well. Uh, in smaller scales, local churches by pastors we've never heard of. This is one reason why it is so important for churches to have a plurality of elders who hold one another accountable. Don't allow one another to live lives of non-transparency and secretiveness. But this verse also is a warning uh, to us of false teachers who reach into our homes in our households with their false teachings, again, preying upon the vulnerabilities of women. Not to say that all women are weak or vulnerable in this way, just as like, it's not true to say all teachers are abusive, but that this can and does happen with some. Especially in today's world with the internet bringing into our homes the potential of hearing all manner of truth and falsehood, I think what Paul is implying is that certain weak women burdened with sins have a desire to learn new things, new truths, and thus are easily led astray by unbiblical teachings. But because they gravitate toward these false teachers, they are never able to come to a real knowledge of the truth. So in verses 8 and 9, he talks about Janus and Jambres. Who are Janus and Jambres? If you were to look through the Bible, you'll not find their names mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, but if you were to take a look in the cross-reference, you'll find that Paul is referring to two magicians in Exodus 7 and 8 who were able to replicate several of the plagues that Moses uh, brought down upon Egypt. Paul says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was of those of these two men. So if you look back in Exodus 7 and 8, Paul is comparing the false teachers of the last times, the ones who we see today and who've been around for 2,000 years, he's comparing them to these, last, to these, these two magicians. So just as these magicians, if you remember, were able to turn their staffs into serpents the way Aaron did to prove to Pharaoh that they were speaking for God, uh, they were also able to turn the water in the Nile to blood just as Moses did. And also by means of their secret arts, these two magicians that 
I guess we're called Janus and Jambres, they were able to conjure up frogs upon the land of Egypt, matching what Moses did by God's power. So for a while, they looked like they had the same power available to them that Moses did by God's power. But when it came time to create a cloud of gnats, they failed. For whatever reason, they were not able to produce gnats by their secret arts. So they finally had to tell Pharaoh that they just didn't have the same power that Moses had. So Moses must have something that they don't have. They had to tell him finally that Moses had the finger of God. Their folly became evident to Pharaoh and to everyone else. So this is the connection, I believe, that Paul is making between these two men and false teachers of today. These men oppose the truth, and the men today, these false teachers also oppose the truth, are corrupted in mind, and are disqualified regarding the faith, which is another way of saying they're really not Christians. They're really not believers. They really haven't been born again. And I think that should be obvious to any one of us, that anyone who lives a life like that has no fruit of the Spirit, but evidences only the works of the flesh. So, These men, they may look like the real deal for a while, but eventually who they are will be made plain to all. And uh, the only thing is, the unfortunate part, is the destruction that they cause along the way and the broken lives that they leave behind in their wake. Okay, so where does all this leave us? Should we be despairing? Who can protect us against men like this? Who can empathize with us? Well, the short answer, the Sunday school answer, is Jesus. Jesus himself had to deal with one such man, his disciple Judas. Judas walked with Jesus and the other disciples for three years, hearing firsthand from Jesus the truths of God and his kingdom. He embarked on a mission trip with the other disciples when they were commissioned two by two. And he preached the gospel. He performed miracles, cast out demons, and healed the sick. For three years, he looked and acted like he was a real disciple of Jesus. Though Jesus knew of his impending treason, it wasn't until the very end that his treasonous heart was revealed. All that to say, there's not a lot we can do about the coming of false teachers and hypocrites. If it happened to Jesus... And it happened to Paul, we can be sure, based on their promises, that it will continue to happen in the church, Christ church today. But what we should be doing is trusting in Christ, preaching the gospel of forgiveness and grace to one another and to a sick and dying world. There is no message of darkness that can withstand the power of the gospel, which promises life and peace freedom, and joy, not to mention eternal life, for any and all who forsake their sin, 
come to Jesus Christ in faith, believing that he lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death for our sins on the cross, and rose victorious over death and hell on the third day. We serve a king who reigns over his church from the throne room of heaven, but his promise still stands that he is coming quickly. And since we are living in the last days, that moment is imminent. His promise that his church will prevail, and so we eagerly await his return. In closing, I just want to say a few words about our own church. We're going to be experiencing sort of a big change as Pastor Sam steps down from being our lead shepherd on July 1st. Some of you are new to Restoration Road. We're thankful you're here. You may not have heard Sam preach much or have gotten to know him, but many of you have been able to enjoy and benefit from Sam's teaching for many of the past 15 years that Sam has been pastoring. I'm blessed to have been able to serve with him both here and in Marysville for the entire time. So I just say to you to be thankful this morning for the gift that he is and has been. A faithful a faithful man of God with character and integrity. Be thankful that he's transitioning out of full-time ministry for good reasons and not because he's being forced out for living out any of the 19 ungodly traits that we've been talking about. And be prayerful about how you will receive the man of that will next fill that role. He's not going to be Sam Ford version 2, and neither should we expect him to be. But God willing, he will be a man of God with proven character and faithfulness. And he will need your support. The role of lead pastor is big, and the weight of it is heavy. But you can make it lighter by how you love him and his family. Coincidentally, I'm also, as Mike already mentioned, being granted a six-month sabbatical from eldership beginning on the same day. During this time, I will be also seeking God's continued direction for my life and family concerning my role at Restoration Road Church and what that will look like in the future. But I am extremely confident with the elder board that God has blessed us in this church, have no reservations about their love for and commitment to this church and to all of you who call this home. We are very blessed as a church. And remember to keep us all in your prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. May it refine us and renew us day by day. Thank you, Lord, for the warning you give us concerning false teachers and how they can be identified as we live out the last days. Keep us from being the prey of these people by increasing our love and knowledge of you. We pray that those who have been hurt by these would find healing and restoration. And we pray that false teachers would repent and embrace the true gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.